You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. To manage the transition of our power system towards sustainable technologies really does necessitate retirement, but managing those retirements in a way that maintains the security of the power system, I think is the very difficult question at the moment. Basically, the door's shut on the credit market for the coal industry. For March 30th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As we've heard in many of our previous shows, the science of climate has clearly coalesced around the importance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C, and it largely agrees about what we might expect if the world misses that target and instead winds up with 2 degrees or more. And we have many studies now that have clearly identified exactly what needs to happen, both globally and within each country, to hit those targets. We also have numerous techno-economic studies showing that the required energy transitions will be affordable and scalable from a technology and market standpoint, and we have a body of work on what makes effective climate policy and what it takes to get policy implemented and secured, as well as useful observations on political economy and other elements of the social and political dynamics involved in getting the transition done. What has not been done to the same extent is understanding the feasibility of the energy transition from a historical and empirical perspective. After all of the above considerations have been taken into account, can we really believe that the transition could happen at the requisite pace, fuel by fuel, and country by country? But some of that kind of analysis has been done, and we'll speak with one of its principal researchers in today's conversation. Dr. Jessica Jewell is an associate professor at Chalmers University in Sweden and a professor at the Center for Climate and Energy Transformations at the University of Bergen in Norway. She is closely involved in numerous projects exploring the mechanisms of energy transitions and the feasibility of climate action, and has published extensively on the subject. She's also a guest research scholar at IASA and was a contributing author in the IPC CC's Working Group 3 Fifth Assessment Report, among many other roles and titles. Her knowledge on these subjects is deep, and it's a real privilege to have her on the show. We'll discuss research she has co-authored on the speed of solar, wind, and nuclear adoption, as well as the speed of phasing out fossil fuels, to see if those things are happening quickly enough to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. We'll also ask whether the scenario modeling that has been done to date is really what we need, and how to improve it. Then in the news segment, we'll check out a bold new initiative in Massachusetts to invest in ground source heat pumps instead of replacing old gas lines. We'll update the race between full battery electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. We'll recognize the huge gains for renewables in Australia last year. We'll eulogize the UK's brief experiment with fracking for shale gas. And we'll note some worrying new IEA data about global oil supply and demand. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group licensee, the National Gas Company of Trinidad and Tobago. I believe they are the first gas company to license our show, so I applaud their forward-looking perspective, and I hope they find it useful. Welcome. And now, our conversation with Jessica Jewell, recorded February 23rd, 2022. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Jessica, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks so much for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be here. You bet. Well, you've co-authored a whole series of papers, many of them with friend of the show, Ale Chirp, that examines the political economy factors in the energy transition as a way of projecting how feasible it is. And we discussed the magnitude of the change that will be needed, both in phasing out fossil fuels and in building up renewables, with the IEA's Christoph McGlade in episode 166. And we discussed the political economy challenges of the transition more broadly with Peter Newell in episode 164. So I thought it'd be helpful to have you on the show now to discuss your research since it sort of ties those threads of the conversation together. But before we dive into the details of your research and what it can tell us about the feasibility of the energy transition, perhaps you'd like to explain why you approach it from this perspective and what you hope to find out. Yeah, definitely. So the overarching goal of my research is to figure out whether the growth of clean energy technologies depicted in climate stabilization scenarios is feasible in the real world. So not just in the mathematical models used for constructing these scenarios. And we think this is really important because we figured out how to solve climate in mathematical models, but now we need to figure out how to solve climate change in the real world. And my group tackles this by analyzing what type of technologies are depicted in major climate mitigation pathways. And then we analyze historical and current data on technology use across different scales and in different contexts. And then we go beyond simply technological factors to also examine sociopolitical factors and to try to identify historical precedents for the types of change needed to reach our climate targets. Okay, so let's talk about some of the recent research. One paper you co-authored published in Nature Energy in July 2021 looked at the speed of wind and solar adoption in various countries to see if they were being deployed quickly enough to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. And I'd like to dig into that study with you. So first, how did you approach the problem and what was your methodology? Yeah, so let's start with the problem we're dealing with. So our starting point is the growth of renewables in the IPCC climate and energy scenarios. And I think it's really important background that there's been a really lively debate among researchers as to whether the growth of renewables depicted in these scenarios is consistent with what's going on in the real world. Right. And so we wanted to systematically compare the existing trends with what's depicted in the scenarios. But we quickly realized that this is way easier said than done. And this <laughs> is because the growth of new technologies, including renewables, so including solar and wind, is not linear. So we can't just measure how much was added in 2020 and compare that to how much scenarios tells us needs to be added in 2030. Well, exactly. In fact, that was a key point in the interview we did with Matt Ives about their paper in episode 159. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so they used one model, but let me talk about how we solved it, and then we can circle back and compare and contrast our results Perfect. in a minute. So we don't have linear growth of technologies. What we actually have is that technologies follow S-curves. So what we needed to figure out was what is the maximum growth rate along this S-curve? And that was one of our major innovations in this, was we figured out a way to measure the maximum growth rate along the S-curve. And let me just explain what it means to follow an S-curve. 
because I think this trips up a lot of people. And mm. what it means is that it means that first the growth accelerates every year. So every year there's more and more capacity additions and then it stabilizes and then it starts to slow down. And what's remarkable in this pattern is that there's a point on every S-curve where the growth stops accelerating but has not slowed down. And at that point, growth is the fastest. And this point is called the inflection point. And so our method was to find a way to locate that inflection point by fitting S-curve models to historical data and to measure the maximum growth and then to compare it with what's depicted in scenarios. Okay. Now, one of the challenges is that to measure the maximum growth rate, we need enough data along the curve. So the technology should have reached or ideally be past the inflection point. But the problem is that globally, the deployment of wind and particularly solar power is still at pretty early stages. So it's not yet at the inflection point and it's still accelerating. So we don't know what the maximum growth rate will be. Mm. So to solve that problem, instead of looking at global rates, we looked at what's going on in individual countries. And this gives us a lot more data. And it also has the advantage that we can observe many cases and many countries with pretty mature renewable sectors where the growth has already reached the inflection point. So has already accelerated to this maximum growth rate like Denmark and Germany. And there's a pretty long time trend that can be used to analyze these growth patterns. And this is in contrast to the global development, which is still pretty immature. So in summary, what we did was we fit growth models to historical data of wind and solar power deployment in about 60 countries. We estimated the maximum growth rates from these curves, and then we compared these national growth rates to what's depicted in global scenarios to achieve 1.5 or 2 degree targets. Great. I think this S-curve study point is an interesting one, and I agree, I really haven't seen that approach taken to this question. But it is an interesting contrast with the paper by Matt Ives et al., which, which did try to look at growth curves. So how would you contrast your methodology with theirs? Yeah, so the paper by Matt Ives, they ask really a slightly different question. So they ask how much the energy transition will cost under certain assumptions about their growth. And we ask which assumptions about the growth are realistic. And here, the assumption that they make about growth is a pretty common assumption that's made in the literature, which is that renewables are growing exponentially. And to be honest, we got tripped up by this at the beginning as well. And it took us quite a bit of time and quite a lot of analysis to come to terms with the fact that the growth of renewables is not exponential, okay. either in individual countries or in the world as a whole. And I think the reason that it's really easy to make this mistake is because at the beginning of the S-curve, growth is accelerating. So it is accelerating and there are more and more additions every year. So it's tempting to mistake this pattern for exponential. But 
accelerating does not necessarily mean exponential growth. And the difference is that in an exponential model, the yearly growth rate is the same. But in the beginning of the S curve, there are more and more additions every year, but it's gradually decreasing every year. And that may seem like a small difference. I mean, you may say, come on, Jessica, don't be so pedantic. <laughs> but it's actually a pretty big difference. And you end up with pretty big differences if you make this mistake. So you're going to get a different growth rate for every single year of the S-curve. And if the S-curve is like, whatever, let's say 20 years long, you're going to get a different growth rate for every one of those 20 years. So we don't calculate those year-on-year -year growth rates. Okay. What we measure is the growth rate at the maximum growth rate. So when growth has stabilized. Hmm. Okay. Because at the beginning of the S-curve, it's accelerating, but that acceleration decreases every year. And then when growth has stabilized, it's nearly linear. Okay, so when you say stabilized, you're saying at the end of the S-curve, basically. No, no, not at the end of the S-curve. At the inflection point. Oh, okay. After it's, whenever I talk about this, I really always wish I had a whiteboard, or at least my <laughs> arm. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about this not being in front of people. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> so at the beginning of the S-curve, it's a U-shaped curve. And then it stabilizes to a line in the middle. Okay. And that middle is basically a line. So the body of the S, basically. The body the, of the S. Yes. The ascending this, part. The ascending part of the S. Okay. And that is when the maximum additions are added every year. Gotcha. And that can go on for some time. And I use the term middle. That's actually slightly wrong. Depending on the exact S-curve model that you use, there are different models. It can start at like 37% of the maturity of the S-curve or later. Hmm. But I don't think that's really important for your listeners to know. What's really important is that it stabilizes after accelerating for some time. Okay. And the important distinction is it's maximum in terms of capacity additions. So in terms of gigawatts, it's not maximum in terms of percentage. Oh, okay. So the absolute rather than the relative growth. Exactly. Okay. So now I have a better idea of how your methodology differs from the one that the Oxford group was using. If you compared the results of a given analysis, let's say we took their analysis and your analysis and we did them side by side on, I don't know, let's say solar in the UK or whatever example you want to use, what would the differences in the output be? I think it's useful to illustrate how the exponential model gets us wrong. I mean, one thought experiment that we use is let's time travel. And because if the exponential model is right, then we should be able to use the exponential model to take some time in the past and then predict today's level of renewables. Right. And so we can go back to 2015. And in 2015, we want to understand how much solar will be in 2021. Right. And so in 2015, we're going to take all available data and say, okay, for the last six years, solar has increased by an average of 46% every year. And then if we were to project that exponential growth rate, 
with a constant rate, today we would project that there would be 2,200 gigawatts of solar by the end of 2021. But in reality today, we have 900 gigawatts. So we'd be off by two and a half times. Mm. And that's projecting over a six year time horizon. So you can ask, okay, what went wrong? Right. Well, what we got wrong was that the annual growth rate from 2009 to 2015, so that was the best available data we had in 2015, was 46%. But the annual growth rate from 2015 to 2021 was 26%. Ah. So that's what I mean when I say that, yes, the growth is accelerating, but it's not accelerating at the same rate. Okay. And that's the difference between an S-curve and an exponential curve. And so that's why we think it's really important to use an S-curve rather than an exponential or a linear model. You also get it wrong with a linear model because it's accelerating. So we think you need to use an S-curve and then we think the most reliable rate that we can use is the maximum growth rate as a benchmark. Okay, so that's really helpful. All right, so now that I understand kind of how the two different methodologies contrast, let's go back to the findings of that Nature Energy report where you looked at the speed of wind and solar adoption of various countries. What was the kind of headline finding from that study? Yeah, so there are really two main parts. One is that we compared renewable energy development between countries. And the second is we compared renewable energy development between what we found in different countries and what we found in climate and energy scenarios. Mm, okay. And so when we looked at renewable energy development between countries, what we found is that growth of wind and solar has already stabilized in quite a few countries where we could measure the maximum growth rate. Hmm. And in those countries, we calculated the maximum growth rate as between half and 1% of total electricity supply per year. So we always normalized it to the total electricity supply so that we could compare different countries. Hmm. And what this means is that when a country grows at its fastest, it's adding between half and 1% of solar or wind relative to the electricity supply. So if a country's electricity supply is 100 terawatt hours, it's adding between half and one terawatt hour of solar or wind over the year. Okay. Now, one thing that we tested is if countries which introduce solar and wind later reach higher maximum growth rates than those which introduce it earlier. Hmm. And why is this an important question? It's a really important question because there are many countries where the growth is still accelerating. So we can't measure the maximum growth rate there. And there are also a lot of countries where growth hasn't even started. And so it's possible that these latecomers can learn from pioneering countries and achieve even higher growth rates. Mm -hmm. And this would be really, really good news. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we did not find that later adopters reached higher maximum growth rates. If anything, their growth rates are slightly lower. Hmm. And we think this is the case because the same factors which prevented them from introducing the technology earlier, so weaker institutions, less suitable geography, and riskier environments, also slow down the growth of the technologies. Mm -hmm. So can we take as a proxy for this sort of the difference between 
developed world, like OECD countries and developing world countries? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a fair comparison. Okay. Wow, this is interesting. And so you're saying that these developing world countries may experience sort of a faster growth earlier on, but they're not going to achieve maybe the same maximum growth rate as the developed countries that started earlier. Yeah, so they accelerate through the beginning of the S-curve faster, mm -hmm. but they don't reach higher speeds. So the way I explain it to my students is they can get onto the highway faster, but their speed limit is the same. Interesting. In fact, their speed limit might be slightly lower. That was our finding with later faster. You know, I'm wondering if there's an analog here to things we might be more familiar with. For example, the adoption of mobile phones. It's sort of a, a famous point in terms of S-curve adoption rates that developing countries who did not have access to landline phones, many of them just sort of leaped straight to cell phones rather than following the same path that developed world countries did in going through landlines first and then going to mobiles. And so if you take that same kind of a model, there's the question of, for example, you look at countries where there's been a vast part of the population that didn't have access to grid power that are kind of leaping to this localized development of microgrids based on solar. You know, we've seen this kind of thing happening in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Would that be a relevant kind of an analogy here to what you're finding? So you mean whether or not these countries can leapfrog? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And we're actually looking into that question in another project. Hmm. I mean, so far we don't see evidence that these countries are are adopting the technologies faster. Okay. This analysis could be done with mobile phones and other technologies. So using our same method, we need to find a way to normalize it because one thing that's beautiful about electricity technologies is it's very clear what to normalize it to. Right. <laughs> and there are some ideas floating around about what you normalize for mobile phones or, for example, electric vehicles. But nobody's done that work yet. I'm really excited to see if somebody does. Hmm. I'll say that, that our findings do echo some findings from development economics, which, which show that mobile phones and even medical interventions aren't adopted faster if you control for the type and the number of mobile phones and services. So hmm. technologies are not being adopted deep enough in these contexts. And that's basically what we're doing in our studies. We're controlling for the size of the systems. Okay. So going back to kind of the original research question of this paper, is the world deploying wind and solar fast enough to limit warming to 1.5 degrees? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Concerned about climate change and convinced that there are better ways to heat buildings than with natural gas, two Boston-area women have persuaded Massachusetts state regulators to redirect some utility investment to district heating demonstration projects using ground source heat pumps instead. And as a note to listeners, it has become common to refer to ground source heat pumps as, quote, geothermal heat, but I don't do that because geothermal also refers to a very different set of utility-scale power generation technologies, and I think it's more helpful to distinguish between ground source and air source heat pumps. Zainab Magavi, an engineer, and Audrey Shulman, a novelist, estimated that their utilities would likely spend more than $20 billion in ratepayer money to replace aging and leaky networks of about 5,000 miles of gas pipes, and concluded that that would be a poor use of ratepayer dollars in light of the energy transition imperative. Who wants to spend $500 million a year on gas mains that we won't be using in the future, said Shulman, citing the amount of money the utilities spent in 2020 on replacing their gas pipes. We need the utilities to work with us and innovate, she said. Eversource, a local utility, has received state approval to build a $10 million project based on their ideas to connect about 100 homes and businesses in Framingham with a network of ground source heat pumps. Another $16 million project that uses linked heat pumps and underground pipes to heat and cool buildings in Cambridge was approved by state regulators this January. That project will be installed and managed by National Grid as an alternative to their rate-based investments in natural gas pipes. The utilities can use their legal right-of-way to drill holes and install water pipes that would connect via service lines and heat pumps to buildings. The utility could start where they need to replace aging gas pipes and gradually build up the thermal network to neighborhoods, cities, and larger regions. If the projects are successful, Magavi and Shulman hope to redirect the money utilities plan to spend on replacing their natural gas pipes toward installing ground source heat pumps throughout the region and replace the direct use of natural gas and oil in most homes, saving residents money in the long run. Their proposed geogrid is now being considered by utilities in New York, Oregon, Colorado, and Connecticut, raising the prospect of large regional thermal grids. Massachusetts state law calls for reducing emissions 50% below 1990 levels by the end of the decade and getting to zero by 2050, giving utilities incentive to find clean ways to heat and cool buildings. Item 2. A comment published in the journal Nature Electronics in January by Patrick Plotz of the Fraunhofer Institute presented perhaps the most complete and concise explanation yet for why full battery electric vehicles of all types, from cars to long-haul trucks, have already won the race with hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. 
as I pointed out in an article. I wrote. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.